0: podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years reporting on all the Aussie stars from Hoag's to the Hemsworths Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. There are a
1: few young Aussie actors who have risen to the top as fast as Eliza Scanlon. After only a short stint in Home and Away, Eliza landed a major role in the 2018 limited series Sharper Objects playing Amy Adams' sister and she's not looked back. By the time she'd made the Hollywood Reporter's 10 Rising Stars list and won an Australians in Film Breakthrough Award, Eliza was already in Massachusetts for director Greta Gerwig's adaptation of Little Women starring alongside big names like Saoirse Ronan and Emma Watson. Late last year, she starred in Erin Sorkin's hit play, To Kill a Mockingbird, on Broadway with Ed Harris. And next up, you'll see her starring in the Aussie film Baby Teeth, with Ben Mendelsohn and Essie Davis playing the parents of a terminally ill teenager who falls in love with a drug dealer, played by Toby Wallace. Eliza headed back to Sydney as soon as the pandemic hit and Broadway closed, so lucky for me, she had a little free time to sit down and tell us her inspiring story. Here's Eliza. Eliza Scanlon, welcome to Oddies in Hollywood.
0: Thank you, it's good to be here.
1: We should explain to everyone that we're on Zoom and I am in LA and you are in Sydney, is that right? Yes, I'm at
0: home with the family. I've been here for a few months now and I had come home from New York so I was doing To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway and I think I had five weeks left of the show and It was a very quick turnaround once I found out that um, Broadway was shutting down. It was, I think I found out on a Thursday. By Tuesday, I was off. Wow. That's amazing.
1: So you've been doing your lockdown in Australia, which seems like things seem to be getting back to normal there, right?
0: Yeah, things do seem to be getting back to normal. The restrictions are relaxing, but, you know, I'm just taking this time to really reset and... um, Just see old friends and, you know, just catch up on life because I I feel like I've been, well, I have been working for two years straight now pretty much. So it's probably time that I just hold off a bit.
1: Well, we're excited that we were able to track you down because finding you not working and in the same city as me would have taken a lot longer so (laughs) this is great thank
0: god for zoom
1: so let's go back to the beginning i know you're from sydney you went to school in sydney can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about your early childhood i think you have a a twin yeah and also just a little bit about your early introduction to film and tv what you remember as a child
0: Yeah, yeah um well i i've grown up in sydney this is my hometown and yeah i i don't think i I can say that I had a particularly uh, artistically inclined family. My dad started this storage company in in Sydney, and uh, with my mum. And um, I guess they were more business inclined than artistically inclined, but they always appreciated it. And uh, yeah, I have a I have a twin sister and an older brother. He's two years older than me. I don't know for for whatever reason, my sister and I just really gravitated towards the arts and we had a few people in our family that were interested in it but it was never a career so it is quite peculiar that for some reason we we both stepped into that world but my earliest memory of theater is probably I, I can't remember the name of it but it was one of those um youth community theater plays um I just remember one moment on stage where a cowboy and his bride kiss and because it's a a youth um, production they don't want to kiss on stage so they use um, his cowboy hat to kiss behind the, the hat and I just remember that moment on stage for some reason and it kind of brings back this memory of that time and how much I was fascinated by life on stage and replicating life on stage and I think that's where it really began you know I grew up in a time where where internet culture and the digital age was uh, very prominent you know my parents had a point and shoot camera and then as technology advanced we started to get better cameras that could film and I, I was actually looking back on my hard drive a few days ago of old photos and videos and there's so many videos of me filming my my family and my friends and you can just hear me in the background going this looks like a movie oh you stand like this this looks like a movie just just hold there Ah. so i guess i always had it in me (laughs) were
1: they short films or it was just you just sort of gravitating towards the camera and thinking you know that you were making you had something to do with that business
0: yeah i think i think it was both i just always had my hands in a camera uh, once I got into high school, I started making my own my own short films. I started taking it very seriously when I was in high school. When I started doing uh, Sunday classes at NIDA, and um, when I learnt about script writing and screen acting, and because before then I hadn't taken any acting classes, then I just yeah I fell in love with filmmaking, and yeah I I spent holidays making short films. I was obsessed.
1: Were you like roping in your girlfriends or uh, who was in your short films?
0: Oh, yeah. It was all of my school friends. I remember for the first few years of high school being obsessed with TrotFest, the short film festival. And there was a kid's, I think it was called TrotFest Junior.
1: Yeah. It was
0: a kid's film festival. And I never got to actually, I think I entered into it once with a, with a friend of mine. I can't even remember what it was about, I, but it was called Exposed and uh just a shout out to Bella McDonald if you're listening to this it's about a young girl who falls in love with photography i think that's what it was about and we spent so much time making it and we didn't get in and we were so devastated and i remember hearing because bella called me when we found out we didn't get in and she was like crying on the phone and we were you know we were just so invested in it and then as we got a bit older we started reaching out and that's the cool thing about growing up in this age is that we were able to reach out to people that we've we met on Instagram or we coincidentally came across on on Instagram and um it was this young group that were similarly obsessed with filmmaking and we we tried to make a short film together but we never we never put it together um for whatever reason and yeah and I think that it's really cool even now I'm I'm doing the same thing I, I I wrote and directed a short film last year and a lot of the people who worked in that I reached out to via Instagram so
1: wow yeah and that made the Sydney Film Festival right which is doing a virtual screening yeah yeah so there could be a Fest in you yeah
0: yeah I know I'm I'm waiting (laughs) Fest.
1: John Paulson if you're listening yeah if you're
0: listening (laughs) I'm right here
1: So did you go to a high school that encouraged the arts? I don't know where was it in Sydney and at what point did you decide in high school that it was more than a hobby?
0: I, I went to Loretto Kirribilli and it's, uh, it is a school that su- supports the arts but it's definitely not centred around the arts. I think it's more of an um, English maths school. It's not as creatively inclined. Um, everything with the school that had to do with the arts, I was involved with pretty much. I think where it really began was when I was in grade six and I was cast as the lead in this musical. And I just loved it. I just, the thrill of being on stage and and reading the lines out and being collaborative in that way, it just really enticed me. And then um, from then on, I just, I I don't know. I think I I do remember sitting down with my parents being like, this is what I want to do so you better deal with it and they were like okay eliza well, just just wait six weeks then you'll probably be back on the clarinet train again um <laughs> but no it stuck so didn't you play the piano as well or i did play the piano i did play the piano i you know i hated it for a very long time my dad's a pianist so he was kind of the reason why i started playing piano and I think I always felt a bit bad about the idea of giving it up. Um, So I probably did it a bit longer than I ever wanted to um, because I didn't want to disappoint my dad.
1: Then the irony is that you ended up having to play the piano as Beth in Little Women, so you must have been very happy about that. Yeah,
0: he knew all the long, obviously. (laughs) You know, coming back to the piano playing Beth was so much more fun to not have to do any of the theory and the exams. It just takes all the pressure off and it actually makes it an, an enjoyable experience. Um, cause I was terrible. Uh, you know, I, I, I love performing and I love acting on stage, but when it comes to singing on stage or, you know, playing an instrument on stage, I freeze. And, you know, once I stuff up one key on a piano, it's downhill from there. <laughs> I can't go back.
1: What was the moment where it went from being a dream or an interest or an obsession to an actual job?
0: Well, when I was probably in year 8 or year 9, I was begging my parents to um help me get an agent. I really wanted to start working, and I obviously didn't quite know what that meant at that age. I just saw a lot of people, a lot of young people in films and I was just sitting there wanting to be them and wanting to do that. And I didn't know how. And there was definitely some point where I was begging my parents to move to the States. And I'd read the Wikipedia pages of famous actresses and, Read that they moved to the states when they were 12 with their family and from then on they had a successful career and I thought well <laughs> I if I want to do this I have to you know my whole family has to move to the states and we we've got to do this and they're like uh, no we we have our lives too uh we're <laughs> not moving to the states, to you sorry and then <laughs> my I remember from mom I think at some point I was like well what I just want to do I have to go to school like do I have to finish school and mom's like, yes, you have to finish school. You're you're doing the bloody HSE, whether you like it or not. So I was definitely, uh, I definitely had to do school. That was just a must for my for my parents. If I really wanted to act, I needed to finish school. So at least for whatever reason, I didn't want to do it anymore, or I I lost interest in it, I could get a degree in something, which I'm very thankful for because it's um You know, I think at some point I will go back to university. I'm not sure doing what. So, yeah, I had an agent when I was a bit younger for a whole year and they didn't give me one audition. (laughs) Yeah, it was terrible. And I paid a fee to get in. And that's, you know, now I know that that's um, one sign of a scam that you have to pay a fee to be a part of an agency. Um, And yeah, so I was signed with them for one year. Nothing happened. Didn't even get into a room. And so I resorted to. Online listing, like casting listings, and did a few non paid university student films, um, things of that nature. And then when I got into year 11, I did this course, this acting course that took me to the States. And I was there for three weeks and I signed with managers there. And from then on, I was auditioning for. American films that was kind of how I got my foot in the door in the American industry wow yeah it was quite peculiar
1: what was the course you did that took you to America
0: uh I forget the name of it now it's um, oh they would
1: be dying right now that you can't remember
0: <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're called APA I think um and they used to run this course it, it, you, you know they take a group of young Australians um to do acting classes with casting directors and just learn about the business, really. We had a three-week holiday at school, and so I went during that time. And when I was back, I was putting down tapes. And I was terrible back then. Oh, my God, I would die looking back at those self tapes. And then in year 12, this is also a weird coincidence. In year 12, I signed with my first Australian agents, so at the time, the agents, they were, li- they were in this um, shared office complex. So there were other businesses within um, the building. And opposite them was a family friend of ours, Simon. He, one day he had overheard them talking about an actor named Eliza. He just assumed with no real knowledge of the industry that it must be me. So, and there's no other Eliza in the industry that they could possibly be talking about. And so we said, Oh, I, I know Eliza. If you, if you want to self tape, uh, if if you, if you want to see her work, I, I can get her to send it to you. And I'm like, Oh, great. That's fantastic. Please, please do. So I sent through my tape and I think Teresa and Tracy, um, two of my agents, they were in the car when they were watching the tape and they were like, well, this isn't the Eliza we were talking about. But- um, (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, they're like, this is not who we were talking about at all, but they really liked the, the tape. So they wanted to see me. Wow. And so I went in and had a meeting with them and they were lovely. And we signed with them straight away and I've been with them since. And a few months later, I got my first job as a guest role on home and away home and away
1: for most people listening to my podcast series I I've lost count of how many people in my podcast series had a role in either neighbors or home and away it seems like it's some sort of rite of passage right were you on the show at a time where there were other people that were kind of going to Hollywood and doing all of that stuff
0: so I was on the show at a time well I was only really working with two people and it was Rochelle Bano who I'm still close with and um, Scott Lee who I'm also still friends with. No I, I, I can't think actually Rochelle is working in the States at the moment um, so I guess yeah that you know I think there's a good success rate for people who work um, on Home and Away which is really cool. But yeah, that taught me everything. That was a really scary experience, especially not knowing what happens to your character every week. You know, this was on top of HSE too, so I was incredibly stressed. Um, And I remember reading the storyline for the next week or the next block and I was reading through one of the scripts and um, it says that my character kisses this boy. And I was like, no, Uh, I freaked out um i was just so not ready for it and i was like on the verge of a fucking meltdown um i was like i can't do it i can't do it this is acting is not for me if i can't kiss someone on a screen obviously it's not for me i just can't do it i can't do it um but i did it and um god that I, that moment scarred me for a really long time and now i just feel like i can do most things on a screen which is a bit disconcerting <coughs> But yeah, it taught me a lot that that eight weeks stint. But no, and then I think after that, I finished the HSC and auditioned for Sharp Objects. So I, I put down a self tape, and then they took on casting in Sydney. I remember it being the first audition that I did after the trial exams. So I was feeling a little bit rusty. I walked into that audition not really feeling that confident. And I came back out going, yeah, that really wasn't that good. But, oh, well. And then I found out that I was pinned for the project and I didn't know what that meant at the time. I'm not sure I know what that means, actually. I know. I was like, do people even use this term? But it means that you're just like on a short list for another short list or something. (laughs) They just like want to know your availability at a certain time mm. and then i did all my exams went to schoolies went crazy at schoolies and i knew when i was going to the gold coast to do schoolies that they actually beforehand they called me to say they wanted to fly me to la to do a screen test with amy and john mark and i was like the fuck
1: well oh, to people who who, who are listening Amy is Amy Adams. Yes, Amy Adams, sorry. <laughs> <And> Jean-Marc <laughs> is Jean-Marc Valet, the incredible Correct. director. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Correct. Two very phenomenal People and creators. So
1: you're just like finishing your HSE and being like, okay, now I'm going to go to LA and do a screen test with Amy Adams and Sean Martin. It
0: was insane. I was just like, what is going on? I, surely this is going to end badly. I'm just going to get my feelings hurt. And so I went on Schoolies and then I got to LA and I was there for about a week. By the end of it, I found out that I got the role. And that, by that point, my ATAR didn't even matter. I didn't care at all what I I received, um, despite working so hard for it. <laughs> I bet you did well. Yeah. Well, I, I was very proud of my, of my result. Good. Yeah. Next thing I knew, I was going to LA and starting the series.
1: So many people have this slog and they work so hard. And mm. you were suddenly one day you were finishing high school and the next day you were in LA in a very prestigious project with Amy Adams I mean was it hard to sort of just get there and
0: feel like you fit it in it was very hard I think you know this sudden I call it luck but it's also hard work and being dedicated and like I said obsessed with it for a really long time that's not to say people who who don't get a job like that aren't obsessed with it and don't and don't work hard but I think yeah I was just incredibly lucky and I was in the right place at the right time you know I at the time I looked really young but I was 18 so that was definitely a reason why I got the role there were two other girls going for it and I was older than both of them Um, but I looked young and that was a really important part to this character so yeah it's just all of the kind of all the stars align and I was just really lucky in that way but it did come with this imposter syndrome feeling and it's something that I really struggled with for the first year Uh, when I was doing the show it was I think being in the states it it was a little easier to digest because I was sort of I was thrust into this new world and I left my life back in Sydney um, for this project, and I had no choice but to um, jump into the deep end and and just really take the risk and um, really commit to making friends and and um, uh, you know just kind of creating a life in in LA. And then in terms of being on set, I have only my home and away experience to compare to it. And I remember being on the phone to my agent, her saying that, thank God, thank God you had home and away because you would have been shitting yourself if you didn't. (laughs) Um, uh, Cause I would have had no clue how to be on a set. It just, that's seriously, it's where I learned everything. I learned on set etiquette and I don't know if I could have done sharp objects if it weren't for that um so it was this in, it's it was an incredibly difficult challenging time in my life and also just the emotional quality of the show it was completely different to home and away and I was just very scared of the whole thing it was really a hard subject matter yeah and I think to this day it's still one of the it's probably still the hardest role I've ever done um and I had to change myself physically for it I was roller skating every day. I was so committed, and and the reason why I was so committed is because I had no other option but to be that because I didn't know. I didn't know what the threshold was. Like, how much did people prepare? I don't. I just had no kind of perception of what it took to do a job like that. So I just committed my whole entire being to this show for a for 6 months um and it was incredibly rewarding but i think coming out of it i was i came back home to sydney and i left that space and you know i always i always find this when i'm travelling now like i go to a place to work for 3 months or more and i come back home and because i ha- i'm not surrounded in that physical environment to to spur the memories of that place. It feels like it never happened. Um, and I come back home and it's a bit of a time capsule. I'm like, wait, did that even happen? Did I even go there? Did is this movie even real? Um, so it was really hard reckoning with that when I came back home after doing Sharp Objects. And I felt like I didn't have my feet firmly planted on the ground anymore and I, I needed to go back to acting class or something, and that's what I did and usually with an acting class you begin by going around in a circle and just introducing yourself and I remember doing I was doing this Shakespeare clowning course in Melbourne a
1: Shakespeare clowning course
0: yeah yeah so wow. uh, we did Shakespeare scenes in the evening and in the mornings we did um like classical clowning training which is wow. fucking terrifying so scary <laughs> um but I remember sitting around in the circle and people just kind of checking in and seeing how everyone was feeling. And I just remember being like, Oh, hi, my name's Eliza. Yeah. I've just come back from the States on this show. And I just started, I burst into tears (laughs) and everyone was like, is she okay? Um, And I just didn't know how to talk about it because there was this, like I said, the imposter syndrome, I felt like, you know, it was a huge thing, and I wanted to be happy about the experience, and of course, I had a wonderful experience, but I felt like every time I was talking about it, I was like, oh, you sound like such a wanker, shut up, shut up, like, you should be grateful, or like, don't even talk about it, people will think that you're a wanker, and blah, 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 I just had this really bad internal dialogue, that everyone was just going to see me as this, see me as this girl who got lucky and didn't really have any kind of training and doesn't deserve it and then yeah I spent a lot of time just kind of loving myself again and being like okay I did that that's uh, it's really cool that you did that but there's more parts to you and then I met I did this short film for a friend and it was on that set that I met this girl who is my best friend now, Nadia's worker, and she always tells me this story. We were talking and she was like, oh, um, what have you been doing? Are you working at the moment? I said, oh, I just came back from LA to do this. Uh, I was doing a series in LA and, and she was like, oh, what's the series? And I said, Sharp Objects. And she was like, oh yeah, I auditioned for that. That's amazing. And I was like she just remembers me being so painfully reserved about it and not wanting to really talk about it and not engaging and just being like oh yeah yeah it was good I guess uh and I just didn't really own it at all it was just that painful imposter syndrome that was really hard for me at that time um and I didn't really feel that confident in myself yeah but she really Nadia she's taught me a lot about kind of teaching myself that you know I have been lucky but I've earned it too. And I work really hard and I, you know, I am obsessed with it, but it also, there are also some really hard times that I've had to push through and a lot of sacrifices you make if you want to really do this as a career.
1: So talk about working with John Mark Vallée and Amy Adams and Patricia Clarkson and all those amazing people. I, I, I've read that they were amy was very maternal and protective of you mm-hmm. what was that relationship like and how much did you learn from those actresses around you it's great to have other actresses particularly one playing your sister um mm-hmm. that you get to hang out with instead of often being on a set whether it's just you and you know a lot of guys
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're so right um yes they were i think the, with the more experiences i have on a set the more i realize how special it was, working with Patricia and Amy and, and Jean-Marc. Patricia and Amy were incredibly maternal, and I think they, they were well aware that this was my first gig in the States and, like, my second gig in total. <laughs> Amy used to always say, I, I think we are doing some interview, she told me that I went around so many times on set asking, is this normal? is this normal? Cause I just had no clue. I just had no idea what I was doing really. <laughs> and so they really showed me the ropes and, um, took me under their wing. And there were many times where I, I do recall, um, I just felt really lucky to have them by my side because there were scenes where I had no idea how to approach it. And Whilst it may look like Emma is really strong-minded and she's making all the decisions, I think Amy and Patricia really led the way and they, just as people, they sort of set the mood. You know, being veterans of their craft, they have a certain responsibility to do that. But even within the scenes, they were guiding me. You know, I I think so much of acting in a scene is, is not only listening, but kind of throwing each other offers and um, they were incredibly generous in that way. And I do remember, I even remember one scene in particular, I think it was, I can't remember the episode, but Amma gives Camille a pill and she does it through her mouth. And I was really scared of doing that scene. Um, And I didn't really know how to do it, just logistically. And this is when the, just the pure logistics of a, a scene come into play and, um, how you make it work, um, technically. And I, I had no clue how to, how to make it work in that way and also make it visible for the camera. And Amy was just like, just hold my face, hold my face like this and squish it and then put the pill in. And I was like, Oh, of course. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and she's just a really good problem solver in that way. And she just makes it work. And Patricia is the the exact same. I think the first scene I did with her was when Amma is playing with her dollhouse and she has a tantrum and is screaming. And Patricia and I, well, Patricia kind of blocked it out with me. And she was like, okay, when you start screaming, I'm just gonna cradle you and I'm gonna keep rocking you throughout this scene. And it's just things like that, that they look so seamless when you're watching it but it's really the incredible minds of these actors who have been doing this for years they they what they look at a script and they look at a scene and they know immediately what to do with it and and how to get the message across if it's not through the dialogue but through visuals and uh those two physical choices are both so powerful and they just knew straight away what to do and how to convey the message of a certain scene just through a really simple choice. And that's something I definitely learned from, from the both of them. And Jean-Marc valet, he's, he's wonderful and he's has incredible trust in his actors. And I think I was very lucky to, to have had my first big experience on a set with him because there were no marks at all. I don't think one mark was ever taped down onto the ground. There was no real, I mean, of course there were setups, but not in the sense that people had to wait in the chair outside um, until everybody was ready and the lighting was set up. We shot with a lot of natural light. And when we were in on the soundstage, it was, it was very quick because he, he likes to be constantly moving and um, you know, there's, I don't think there's any tripod shots at all. Uh, so it was really, he really emphasized the idea of it being the actor's playground and um, and him moving around us. And we never entered a scene with him suggesting the direction, So, sort to of. you know. It was more like he let us rehearse it and then he'd point out things that he was really drawn to. And he worked around those choices, which I thought was really cool. And I, what I didn't know at the time is that not all directors do that not all directors give you that kind of autonomy. And I was, I learned from a very early stage to kind of take control. And if anyone was going to save my ass, it was me. So I had to make a decision and I had to, I had to trust it and believe in it. So um, yeah, it was an incredible uh, learning experience for me.
1: You know, it it was incredible to watch, but it was also um, incredibly dark and traumatic, and I remember at the time interviewing Amy and Patricia and they were talking about the bath scene and just how traumatic it was. And Yeah. I wonder what were some of the moments that were toughest for you and how did you get through it?
0: Probably when Camille and Amma are together and, and Amma is a bit more unpredictable and um, you see that she is incredibly damaged when she's around Camille and some of the things that she'd say, I I remember doing a scene with, it's after they go out together and um, Emma is leaning on the swing and she says, sometimes if you let the boys do it to you, you're really doing it to them. And it's this... um, and I, I remember, and Camille is so horrified by what she says. It's she's incredibly damaged um, and incredibly emotionally damaged. And I, I think having to write about that every day and think about that every day was quite hard for me. Um, and the emotional manipulation that Adora, her mother, uh, performs on her is was also just. it it was just something really hard to navigate psychologically and I had to write about it a lot to, in order to understand it. And, um, I had this belief that Emma lived three different truths and, you know, one wasn't more true than the other. So I felt like in some ways I was playing three different characters and that was hard for me. Um, and you know, one truth is the docile, um, demure daughter she is in front of her mother and then the other one is is a sister that is still searching for her long-lost sister and she wants to be she wants to be seen and she wants to be loved and then the other one is um a feeling of being misunderstood by everybody and um and this feeling that she can I guess defy the law and be above the law and this um, insatiable desire in her to to dominate and to have control, um, and they're all really toxic feelings that exist in her. And uh, something that I found pretty hard was when I had to be the bad Emma, as everybody says. Um, I had to engage in a like a hypersexualized physicality, and I found that really hard um, because it comes from a place of such inadequacy, um, feeling of inadequacy and, um, vulnerability. So, uh, it was just pretty fucked up in general. Um, (laughs) yeah, I, it's still, it's so, it's still the hardest role I've played.
1: Well, it's the, it was probably the most incredible, Um, opportunity too um, Mm. that anyone could have starting Mm. out. I think all of us, when we watched Sharp Objects, we all knew that a star was being born just watching you in that. You really, it was the the most amazing breakout role. And I don't say that just to be, you know, because I'm talking to you. It's just, you know, the moment we all saw you, it was like, who is that? You know, Um, obviously everyone in Hollywood was saying that too. So talk about, kind of once it came out and then once it came out you were already onto Little Women I think what was the timing around all that?
0: After I did Sharp Objects I didn't work for probably almost a year. Um, Really? I I was auditioning for stuff but I wasn't getting anything and you know it just goes to show how unforgiving this industry can be. I like quite genuinely didn't get any roles. Um, for quite a while and wow yeah and then I I started doing press for Sharp Objects and then Sharp Objects came out Um, and it was when I was I went to the States to do that I met with Greta to audition for Little Women but it was I was in in Sydney I'd put down a tape for Amy, actually, to begin with. Ah,
1: so you first auditioned to play Amy in Little yeah, Women, not yeah, Beth. Yeah, I
0: did. I did, and then mm. they wanted to see me as Beth, so I put down Beth as well. As soon as I got off the plane to get to New York to do press, um, so I was in LA for some time, and I knew that when I was going to go to New York to do the New York press, that they wanted to see that Greta and Francine wanted to see me. The casting director. I remember getting off the the plane and getting our, our luggage in the New York airport and receiving the email and a, like a voicemail of what I need to be aware of when I go into the audition, like what are their notes for me? And it was just all, it all came very quickly and it was very fast paced. And um, the next day I was in the room with Greta and uh, Francine and my sister had come with to New York with me to just hang out, to do the press and she was waiting outside. I walk into, I think it was a Saturday, the WME office was closed, so it was just this huge, empty office building that I was in. I didn't know New York at all at the time, really, and so I was like, where the hell am I? Um, Just in this random office room with Greta Gerwig, okay, and she was, she had brought a, brought a bunch of her friends to play the other characters because it was quite funny doing the audition because most scenes in that in that film is uh it involves more than two people yeah it's rare that there's a a two-hander so um I think she had two of her yeah two of her friends there and she was playing one of the sisters and so there were like so many bodies behind the behind the um camcorder that never really happens, um, which is quite funny. And also it's it's just always funny too when you're auditioning for a period piece and you're all sitting in office chairs in a high rise building. So it's like totally out of context. And uh I did two scenes and we were all in tears by the end of it because it was a was when we did the scene when Beth says I, she says uh it's like the tide going up. It goes out slowly, but it can't be stopped. And we were all just in tears. And and then they met my sister and it was all just really lovely for an audition, to be honest. By the time I got back to LA, I found out that I had the role and it was probably four weeks until I started shooting. Wow. Yeah.
1: That's amazing. I didn't realise that you had a year where you were struggling to get that second role. Yeah. Um, so you've had that both sides of the experience in, in a way now, which must make you grateful when you do get, you know, the work that you're getting. It does. You were on the East Coast because I know they filmed Little Women right around the area where Louisa May Alcott had grown up and lived and that family it's loosely based on. That was another experience where you were just surrounded by women on set. Obviously, it's called Little Women, but, um, you know, even a female director. So what was it like to be with, you know, all of those women playing very different personalities, but I'm sure it was a really great kind of vibe on set with all the sort of the sister energy?
0: It was incredibly exciting, and I actually remember doing press with Amy and then when I found out I got the role I called her to tell her and she started crying and uh, Uh, she was like I get more excited about the roles that you do than the roles that I get and she was just she was like you just need to go and she said you just need to go and do a film with young people that's what I want you to do and I was like okay I'll try and then I got Little Women and I was just really excited to work with people my age uh or close to my age and um yeah it was I went to London to get the fittings I think I was in London for two days and I met Jacqueline the costume designer and I just remember when I was getting these um trying on these costumes I was like shit this is huge this is gonna be a big movie I had no clue really about the scale of this film um, and you could just see it in the costumes they were just absolutely gorgeous and the the care and precision that went into each costume just made me go okay this is going to be really special three months and and it was and I was right and um, once we got to Massachusetts we we, were, we had 10 days of rehearsals and gosh, that was a special time being able to get to know everybody, uh, you know, outside of set and just talk about the books we had read and the films we had seen and just really get the, the script into our bones. It was um, a luxury, not, not, like, it's a luxury that you can't always afford. Um So, to have that was really special, and I just felt really cocooned by all the women on this project and Then Florence came a bit later because she had just finished midsummer. It felt pretty seamless to me uh Sersha and Florence and I were living in the same apartment complex, so we were in very close proximity to each other. You know, they were working quite a lot. I I don't think I was working just as much as them, but when we all had free time, we'd get dinner together and Emma would come too, and it was just a really special time.
1: In case someone's listening and they haven't watched Little Women yet and they're going to run out and get the DVD right now, we don't want to spoil it for you, but watch it. It's great.
0: (laughs) Yeah, go watch (laughs)
1: it. And so... We're talking about Baby Teeth as well, especially because that's coming out um, at a strange time, but it also seems kind of a very relevant film at a strange time in the world. Can you talk a little bit about how that came to you? At what point in this whole journey did it come to you? And it was a big decision because you went back home to Australia for the first time to make a movie where you were the star of the film.
0: Yeah, I received the script Early 2018. That was actually before I did Little Women. And I met with Shannon Murphy, the director, and we just had a chat, you know, the the typical director chat, and they don't want to really offer you the role yet. And you're like, haha, I love the script. Are you gonna maybe offer it to me? I don't know. And we just got along straight away. I remember at the time actually telling her, I was like, you know who I was imagining? that whole time reading the script as Moses Toby Wallace she was like oh yeah true I've been thinking about Toby Wallace anyway Toby Wallace gets the role (laughs) and so he did a lot of chemistry reads with mill like potential millers but I never did a chemistry read with him I'm not sure why but I did audition for it and then I went to do Little Women and I hadn't heard about it for such a long time. And I just thought that they didn't want me. I, I knew I was in a, some kind of short list, but I hadn't heard anything for a really long time. And I just thought they'd moved on. And um, by that point, I've gotten pretty good at just having a thick skin and going, oh, OK, well, I'm sure they've found someone who's even better for the role. So that's fine. But I did really love this script. And I was a bit sad about it. Anyway, I start doing Little Women, and funnily enough, Toby was in Massachusetts, too, shooting The Society.
1: Oh, it's a Netflix uh, thing, right?
0: Yeah, yes, yeah, it's this Netflix show. We had a mutual friend, Olivia Dijon. So Olivia and I were hanging out a bit um, whilst working, and there was one night where... Liv texted me and she was like, Oh, do you want to come over? We're having, just having a few drinks at Toby's place. And I was like, Oh, okay. I've only met Toby once um, in my life, but sh- sure. <laughs> and so we hung out that night. And I remember baby teeth being the topic of conversation at one point because we knew that Toby had the role. And you're we like, Oh, it's just such a great script. And it kind of just reignited my passion and my determination to get it and so I texted my my agent and I was like is there any way that I can put something else down on tape? I just really wanna show how dedicated I am to this and I if they could just give me one more chance. And my agent emailed me back and she was like, You won't believe this, but the casting director just called me an hour ago and offered the role to you. And I was just like wow. what? And so yeah, it was pretty much six months from when I auditioned and when I found out I had the role uh, and by the time I finished Little Women I flew back to Australia I got my wisdom teeth out because that was the only it was urgent it was the only time I could have done it um, and then straight after Christmas we started rehearsals for baby teeth.
1: What can you tell people about Baby Teeth? I mean, I can tell them the synopsis and it's based on a, a play and it was adapted by the playwright Rita. Um, Tell us about Miller, the character you play and how, how the whole world is set up for her.
0: Sure. Um, you know, it's uh, been a struggle for everyone working on this film to kind of describe it in a log line and it, it, took, it took them a long time to figure one out. But one that Rita says all the time, one that we haven't used, is it is a film about how good it is to not be dead yet, which is so I think so poignant and very fitting for this film because it's really not about not about this terminal illness that um, my character Miller faces, um, but it's more about her, you know, going through the throes of teenagehood and learning to be independent. Uh, we meet her when she is. Uh, she's just discovered of the relapse of her, her illness, her cancer, and um, it's some pretty tragic news to face, especially being in high school, being so young. And as a result, her parents have started to cocoon her again, and she feels a bit suffocated by uh, that relationship. And we meet her when she quite literally bumps into this young boy named Moses and uh, he is a, uh, he uses drugs, and he's a bit of a lost cause, and they develop this unlikely relationship, which begins as transactional. He sticks around because she, she has money, and also he steals her uh prescription medication which um,
1: sounds like the worst kind of boyfriend I in know, the world it, by the way
0: it's just all <laughs> kinds of immoral um
1: <laughs> wait your girlfriend's dying and you're stealing her
0: pills <laughs> yeah I know, what an asshole um and she wants to be with him because he's everything that her her parents just despise and and don't he's the bad boy
1: right he's the bad bad
0: boy boy. and he's exciting and he's unpredictable and I think she's also drawn to him because he's so blatantly unafraid of death and actually runs to it in a way and Mm. um risks his life constantly um for I guess a, a thrill uh and she she wanted to ignite that in herself.
1: Yeah. Well, you um, got to go to the Venice Film Festival last year for the premiere, and your parents are played by these two Aussie icons, Essie Davis and Ben Mendelsohn. Um, What was the experience like of having that sort of coming out where you're you're suddenly at one of the biggest film festivals in the world, and for that moment, it's all about your film?
0: Oh, man, it was... um... (laughs) it was insane i i don't think any of us expected to be going to venice film festival and we made a meal out of it we (laughs) you know people usually when they go to film the venice film festival they go for two days um but we stayed for 10 days and made a holiday out of it (laughs) and i was staying Good for you yeah it was really fun we i was staying with amelia the costume designer and sheree the production designer and in this cute little um, apartment and um, Toby was around the corner. And so it was, was Shannon and Kosey McGregor, the casting director. And we'd have dinner together every night and just explore together. It was so much fun. And, you know, Toby got an award, which was insane.
1: Yes, he won a he won a, the the Marcello Mastriani Youth Award. Yes, yes,
0: yes, yes. And we were just on cloud nine the whole time. It was it was insane. You know, I, I think that we were kind of just we were just in awe about the whole thing. And we had this joke that I think Ben started. It actually, we didn't win any other awards, but we were like, we won Venice. We just won Venice. We just would determine. We just like for some reason, thought that we were going to just take it by storm, which we did in some ways, but we didn't get the, I think the Joker got the, what's it called? The gold one. Yeah.
1: That's a bit hard to beat, isn't it?
0: Who cares? We won Venice. (laughs) (laughs) And Ben got us all these, uh, you know, the Venetian masks. He bought it, he like came in, I think we we were having dinner at Kirstie's uh, apartment and he like comes in with this huge bag of Venetian masks. He's like, we won Venice. We want Venice. So silly. How
1: fantastic. Yeah, it was funny. One thing we didn't talk about with baby teeth, which was really hard to watch, was that you have to shave your head. And you obviously did have to shave your head. And I'm looking at you now and you have very short, cute, blonde hair. But I wonder if you can talk about how that felt, knowing going into it that that was going to be, Part of the journey for this film.
0: I spoke about this with Shannon. Don't think I would have had permission to tell the story of baby teeth without having shaved my head. It provided me with a lot of my own personal experience after shaving my head that I I took on in the script. I think, you know, when I had no hair, I was treated differently in public and I found that really um, shocking. You know, people either stared at me for too long or couldn't look at me at all and it was incredibly isolating at times. And also it was, uh, you know, we didn't have a particularly big budget at all. We only had five weeks to shoot it. So the idea of putting a wig cap on was just, it was not an option really. It just, it wouldn't have worked. So there were many reasons as to why it was important to shave my head. And I think it's actually, I do feel like it's kind of changed me as a person as well. Um, as silly as that sounds, I think we we don't even realize how much we hide behind our hair. And I feel like it's made me a lot more confident. And um, yeah, I I really like having short hair. <laughs> did you do
1: the Broadway role before or after this?
0: Um, I did it after. So I I did Baby Teeth, and then um, I went to Alabama, and I shot this film i was in alabama for a, a month and i was shooting a film called the devil all the time
1: oh the netflix movie with the amazing cast yeah yeah tell everybody who else is in it with you <laughs> um uh
0: so i was working alongside tom holland and we were playing um orphan siblings and then i also was also working with rob Pattinson, um and he was playing a preacher and my character I uh, falls in love with The Preacher. Um, And it was there that I met Mia Bosikowska, who at the time, she knew she was doing this. She knew she was doing Lord of the Flies at Sydney Theatre Company. So last year, Sydney Theatre Company put on a production of Lord of the Flies and I had auditioned for it and I still hadn't heard back whether or not I um, was cast and by the time I got back from Alabama, I found out I got a role in it. So funnily enough, I was playing her daughter in the film. So we had some kind of connection there because it was a it was an ensemble film. So there were a lot of people coming through that I would meet briefly, but because it spans over 20 years, the film, and we weren't in scenes together.
1: It sounds like a crazy story. I couldn't even understand it reading. Oh, it's
0: insane! Don't even try. You just, I think you just have to watch it. It's based Um, on
1: a, it's based on a book though, right?
0: Yeah, based on a book. And a whole
1: lot of characters from World War, World War Two, all the way through to the '60s, and there's weird weird things happening with all yeah there's and all of their (laughs) supernatural things and yeah
0: and it's um I guess there's multiple storylines and they all somehow intersect which is pretty cool mm. and then I went to do Lord of the Flies from June to August and I think it was in the last few weeks of doing the play that I found out I got the role in To Kill a Mockingbird and it was straight after It was straight after the play that I went to Venice. I came back from Venice. I shot my short film in five days and then I flew to the States, which was just mental. And you
1: were in, you were in probably what was one of the hottest Broadway plays of the year, without a doubt, adapted by Aaron Sorkin (laughs) to kill a mockingbird. Like who doesn't know that story. Um, And then you were you were opposite acting opposite Ed Harris. So you'd gone from the Sydney Theatre Company to Broadway. It's it's like going home and away to sharper objects. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was very weird. How was
1: it? How was being on Broadway?
0: Oh God, it was um, it was a whirlwind. Uh, I I put it down on tape, not expecting at all to get it. Just no, no way. Not at all. Um, so I was terrified when i found out i had it i just didn't think that they had made the right decision to be honest (laughs) Um, but you know i couldn't i couldn't say no it was an incredible opportunity Um, eight months living in in new york sounded like a dream and yeah it was a it was a really really testing time for me i had never been pushed that much in my life i think uh working as an actor we were working from tuesday to sunday and usually in a working week for a theater actor there's a matinee on wednesday wednesday and a matinee on sunday or saturday Mm. and for our schedule the matinees were on saturday and sunday so we had tuesday night wednesday night thursday night friday night And then it would be two shows on Saturday and two shows on Sunday. So by the time it was Monday, we were pooped. And then on top of that, um, we were doing a performance in Madison Square Garden for, I think it was 18,000 school kids. And we had to um, totally change the way that the uh, blocking ran. Um, so every scene was laid out on the stage, whereas on um, the stage at the Schubert Theatre, things moved and there was only one space for all of those locations to exist. So we had to block it out um, differently and we spent two days a week doing that. So it, our schedule for six weeks was Tuesday day, Tuesday night, wednesday night thursday day thursday night friday night and then two shows on saturday and two shows on sunday it was absolutely mental and you know i was had to cry every day for seven months but you know it was an incredible learning experience and i really loved it i really just adored it and um it really did feel like a, a family so but it was acting mm.
1: one one question I always ask everybody that does my podcast um, the only one I ask everybody is the if you have a theory about why Australians do so incredibly well outside Australia not just as actors but mm. behind the scenes some people have theories everybody kind of has some idea based on your own experience have you got a theory on why you think? we really punch way above our weight in terms of a tiny country taking over the world?
0: That is a good question. I'd love to hear other theories. I think that Americans seem to think that Australians are just really chill people. Along with that, you would usually assume that they're quite slow and perhaps not as ambitious and driven, but we can be both, which I think is really cool. You know, we, we have the there's also the tall poppy syndrome thing that probably uh, is a part of it too. I just think we like, we work really, really hard, but we can also be chilled about it. And um, where I guess a lot of Australians are quite humble and maybe that's what makes us likable. I'm not quite sure, but I do think that we, our work ethic is really important. and. Um, we take it seriously but um that doesn't mean we have to have a serious personality
1: you can have a good time but take the work seriously
0: exactly it's a it's a healthy medium sounds very Aussie yeah exactly
1: (laughs) (laughs) well Eliza thank you so much I know we went a bit long but um it was so great hearing all your stories and you know maybe in like 10 years we'll do this again and you'll have So many adventures
0: to tell us about, right? I I hope so. This will be a bit of a time capsule.
1: (laughs) Well, see you next time. Yeah,
0: see you next time. Thank you.
1: It's hard to believe Eliza is only 21. She already has a career that would be the envy of most actresses twice her age, and it'll take more than a pandemic to keep her from pursuing those dreams. Eliza was recently announced as one of the leads in the next untitled Universal Pictures film from M. Night Shyamalan, the man behind The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. So get ready to see her star continue to rise. Until next time, that's all from Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood was presented by me, Jenny Cooney, and recorded in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production was by Nick Slater, and executive producer was Jenny Goggin. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au. Download the app or look me up on iTunes.